0: Thank you. Good morning. Hey. If you have a Bible, please open with me to the book of Titus. Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14 is our text in the time that we're going to be together this morning. Titus 2, 11 through 14. I know you've been doing a series where you're thinking about how the gospel of Jesus Christ Shapes the desires of our hearts. And this is a passage that helps us understand that a little bit better. The theme for the message today is stay in school. Stay in school. That sounds like something you got to say to your neighbor, doesn't it? Turn to your neighbor and tell them, neighbor, stay in school. There you go. All right. You guys, hold on, hold on. I think they need a little help with that. When, when we do the neighbor thing, you do exactly what I tell you to say, and that's all. All right. But the theme is stay in school. And just before I read the text, just to set the context a little bit, this is one of the pastoral letters. So it's written to a pastor of a growing young church. And there's something a little different in Titus. Usually, if you look at Romans or Ephesians, or Colossians, what Paul will do is he'll spell out the doctrine and then he'll give you the instruction based on the doctrine. Well, what he does here is he tells them what to do first. He's given them the instruction. But then the passage that we come to today, he tells them why and how. And that's what we're looking at today as we think about what it means. And I'll explain what I mean by that. Stay in school. Hear now the reading of the Word of God. And to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. This is the word of God. Let's go to God in prayer together. Holy Spirit, thank you for your presence in this place. Continue to fill us. Continue to fill this place. Help us to understand these words that we read. Lord, we can't do it unless you illumine our understanding, and we can't hope to live these things out unless you fill us with yourself, unless you fill us with your power. And so that's what we're asking for. We pray you would do that this time for your glory. And we ask this in Jesus' name. And all the people of God said, amen. Amen. When I was in seminary back in Maryland, any Maryland folks in the house? Amen. All right. I was working on staff at a church, and one of the things I loved about our pastor that was mentoring me is he would always include me. And lots of leadership things. I got exposed to a lot of things to help understand that, even as a student. And it was so beneficial to me. And one of the things he would include me in was getting to go to a local pastor's meeting that we would have with pastors in our neighborhood. And there was one pastor who was 65 years old, Pastor Allen, who was pastoring right down the street from us. And he had a real pastor voice. You know what I'm talking about? Like, yes, amen. Right? Like, and, and he had all of these These little sayings that he would say, like, if loving the Lord is wrong, I don't want to be right. That that kind of thing. (laughs) But there there was one in particular that he would say often. He would say to us that being a pastor or being a minister, he would say is the best hard job in the world. Being a pastor, he'd say, is the best hard job in the world. And whenever he would say that, I would say, amen, Uh uh-huh, that's right, Pastor. And and one time uh, we went to meet, and it was right when I found out that I was going to receive a call to be a pastor of a church. And we came and we shared that with Pastor Allen, and he clapped. He was so excited. He's like, amen. And he said it again. He said, being a pastor is the best hard job in the world. And then I said, amen, and then he bent down close to me. And then he looked at me, and and have y'all ever had an older person look at you over the glasses? You know what I'm talking about? You know you're about to catch the smoke when they do that, right? (laughs) He looked right at me, and he said, son, I know you think you know what I mean, but now you're about to find out. And a couple years later, I saw him. I said, Pastor Allen, I know, I know, I found out now. He said, amen. Being a pastor is the best hard job in the world. What it is that you are called to when you leave this place, wherever you go next, however God calls you to minister in the name of Jesus Christ, you'll probably be able to say the same thing about that call. It's the best hard job in the world. Well, how are you going to do it? How are you going to be able to have the power to do it? How are you going to be able to continue to continue in doing whatever it is that God has called you to do? You will have obstacles coming at you from the outside. Enemies attacking you, feeling attacked, even from people that are around you. And then you'll be dealing with your own issues, right? The things that are going on in your own heart. How will you be able to stay in school? How will you be able to keep keep on going? Well, if Pastor Allen were here, he would say what the Apostle Paul is saying, stay in school. But the school that he's talking about is not Covenant College. As wonderful as it is, you need to graduate. Get out of here after you finish, all right? Amen, Josh. <laughs> and and Josh is doing fine. I'm not throwing shade at him, all right? If you go to Covenant Seminary, you need to graduate. Go ahead. But what I'm talking about is the one school that you never want to graduate from. The one school that you never want to leave, and that is the School of Grace. You've got to stay in school, but the school that I'm talking about is the school of grace. How are you going to be able to make it with the obstacles that come to you from the outside? How are you going to be able to make it from the attacks that come even from the inside? How are you going to be able to make it with what's going on in your own heart? You've got to stay in school. That is the school of grace. And so what do we learn about that from Titus chapter 2? What we're going to look at, and a lot of times I have three points, and we don't have that today, but instead we have three classes that you're supposed to go to. What are the three classes that he presents for us here? You know what the first class is. It's called grace in the present. Grace in the present. If you go back to verse 11, what does he say? For the grace of God, and what is that? One of my favorite definitions of, of God's grace is from Tim Keller, who recently went to be with the Lord earlier this year, he says grace is unmerited favor, right? It's favor that you didn't do anything to deserve. It's unmerited favor for those who deserve the opposite. Unmerited favor for those who deserve the opposite. And here it says that the grace of God has appeared. What does he mean by that? How has it appeared? It's appeared because Jesus has come. Now, if you look in the Old Testament, y'all study in the Old Testament, God is gracious in the Old Testament, isn't he? One of the ways that he's known in the Old Testament, right, what do they say about him? The Lord, the Lord, merciful and what? Gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. But in in the person of Jesus Christ, grace has appeared in a new way. And what does it say? It's bringing salvation to all people. And what he means by that is every person, regardless of who they are and where they're from and what they've done, has the opportunity to be saved, to know the salvation of God through faith in Jesus Christ. Maybe there's somebody in this room that feels like, Pastor, I'm too far gone. Or maybe I've been appearing like I'm doing all the right things, but I really don't know him. Salvation has come for you today. It's appeared for all people. And here he says, look at verse 12. Here's where we get the idea of school. Now, I think we all know that grace saves us, right? Do you, do you know that? We're saved by grace, but did you know that grace also schools us? It doesn't just save us, but it also schools us. Verse 12 says the grace of God is training us. Do you see that? It's training us. Anybody have a personal trainer? Anybody ever been to a personal trainer? What does a personal trainer do, right? They tell you some stuff you got to stop doing, right? Some things you got to stop eating. And then they, they tell you what you have to do to get stronger and healthier. And that's what Paul is doing here. He's imagining the grace of God as a personal trainer. Well, what does he say that the grace of God is telling us to, to let go of? He says, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. That means anything that transgresses the law of God with our thoughts, with our words, with our actions. He's saying that's what you've got to renounce. That's what you've got to get rid of in order to grow. That's what grace is training us in. But what does grace call us to exercise? It says I want you to live self-controlled and upright and godly lives in the present age. And what that's referring to is disciplining ourselves. Treating other people with justice and mercy and living with reverence and worship for God. That's how the grace of God trains us. Essentially he's saying love God and love your neighbors. Because when we do that, we image God. Now we know that we're made in the image of God. Did you know that? But when we are living the ways that God has called us to live, that's the way we, we change that word to not just being a noun but to being a verb. We image God in the way that we live when we do that. Now, I don't know if you all have seen this, this commercial. It was a Super Bowl commercial from years ago from Snickers with Betty White. Have you all seen that? You can put up that first picture. And some friends are playing football. And Betty White was 90-something at the time of this, right? And, and somebody threw the football, and she caught it, and the person tackled her, and the person ran over to her and said, you're playing like Betty White out there. Right, talking about his friend. And Betty White yells back, that's not what your girlfriend said. That's what she said. But then they're like, whoa, whoa, hold on, Betty, and you can go to that next picture. And they give her a Snickers bar, and then she chews it. And then all of a sudden she changes back into the the person that she was supposed to be. And there it says, and the, the slogan they say is, you're not you when you're hungry. And Snickers is what really satisfies you. (laughs) Y'all like, I'm going to go to get a Snickers bar after this is over. But what is Paul saying here? He's saying that you're not you when you're worldly. When you live with worldly passions the way this passage is calling us to. And what we need is not a Snickers bar, but this class of grace in the present. Where do you come in need of that today? And what I mean by that, what is it that God is calling you to renounce, to get rid of, that's destroying you and the people around you? And what is he calling you to exercise, to demonstrate love for him and the people around you? That's a response to grace in the present. But now let's go to second period. What's the second class that we learn about here? It's not grace in the, in the present, but it's grace in the future. Grace in the future. Look at verse 13. There it starts out saying waiting. And that word that's translated waiting, it's describing an active waiting. It's not this passive waiting like you're waiting for the bus to come and pick you up and, and, and to do something to you. It's an expect, a hopeful expectation. You are living your life in hope. That's the kind of waiting that it's talking about. Now, what, what's the hope in? He says, waiting for our blessed hope. And what is that? He describes it, and this is amazing. The appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. That is our blessed hope. The appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. You remember back in verse 11 it said the grace of God has appeared, but here in verse 13 it says the glory of God will appear in the person of Jesus Christ. What do we know about the glory of Jesus? The writer of Hebrews describes him in in a, a powerful way. It says he is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. The Gospel writer John, remember that it says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And a little bit later he says, the Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us, and we have seen His glory. Talking about the glory of Jesus Christ. This is your class. You are waiting in hopeful expectation for the glory of Jesus Christ. In 1 John, the writer says, oh, how beloved, how incredible it is that we should be called the children of God, and that is what we are. And it goes on, it says, what we will be has not yet been made known. Oh, but when he comes, we shall see him as he is, and we will be made like him. That is our hope. That is what this class is pointing us to, grace in the future. We live in the present based on that hope in the future. Has anybody lost hope this morning? Has anybody come today not having hope that anything's going to change in your life? Has anybody come today with, with, with lost, losing hope that, that anything's going to change in your situation or in your family or in your church or in your community? Well, here he points us to the class that we need, and that's grace in the future. There's a story I've told. Josh has heard it a hundred times. It's rough being a pastor's kid because you know all the stories. Lord, poor guy. But don't spoil it, all right? But there's a story of these two sons, not my kids, um, who are playing football, and they live up against this, this lake that's right there, and so they have a little dock that goes out to the water, but these guys don't know how to swim very well. So their dad is out playing football, playing catch with them, and then he gets a phone call. And this was in the days, right, when you had to go in the house to answer the phone. Can y'all imagine that? Ask your parents about that. They'll tell you about that. But he went in the house. Before he goes in, he says, listen, when I go in the house, don't go near that water. Don't go near the water. So he goes in to answer the phone, and y'all know what happens. They're throwing the football, and they get closer and closer to the water. And finally, the ball goes into the water, and one of the sons runs out on the edge of the dock and tries to get it, and he falls in the water. And his brother runs in the house to get the dad to come back out and look for the son. The the father runs back out quick as he can, and he dives in the water. He's looking for his son. He's looking, he's looking, he's looking. He doesn't see him. And then all of a sudden, he looks, and he sees him, grabbing around the post on on the dock, holding on to it for dear life. And he swims over and he grabs his son and pulls him out of the water. And he says, listen, before I spank you, because I am going to spank you, because I told you not to go over there. But before I do, let me ask you, why is it that you held on so tight? And he says, dad, I held on because I knew you would come. He was waiting in hopeful expectation. Can you hold on today? Can you hold on, knowing that Daddy is going to come? I know it feels like there's things that are overwhelming you. I know you feel like you don't have strength to make it on your own, and you don't. But can you hold on? Because you have a faithful father, who if he said he's going to do it, it's already done. And he's coming to meet you. That's grace in the future. Now let's go to the last class, and then I'll let you go. We've seen grace in the present, right? And then we saw, what do we see secondly? Grace in the? And so guess what we see thirdly? Grace from the? That's right. Y'all got it. Grace from the past. And so what do we learn about that here in this passage? Look at verse 14. What did our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, do? It says in verse 14, he gave himself for us. And y'all see that little word for? It's just a little word, isn't it? It seems like it's not all that significant, but there's so much wrapped in that. It's describing Jesus Christ being our representative and our substitute. There's a passage in Mark chapter 10 where Jesus says, Even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for the many. That means in the place of. That means he took your place. He's the son of God who loved you and who gave himself for you. And it tells you two reasons why he did it. Look at what it says. He says he gave himself for us, first of all, to redeem us from all lawlessness. Now that word redeem, back then it meant to buy a slave or a captive to buy their freedom by the payment of a ransom. What well, Jesus bought, and what it's saying here is not only the forgiveness of sin, as, as incredible as that is, but he also bought for us freedom from sin. He not only bought for us or paid for us the penalty for sin, but he also has redeemed us from the power of sin. So it's not our master anymore. He has set us free. That's the first reason why he did it. But secondly, look at what it says there. It says, he gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself. That means to make clean, to wash clean, to purify for himself what? A people for his own possession. Now, by the way, in these verses, there's a whole lot of Old Testament imagery, a lot of these same words that are used for the people of God in the Old Testament, Paul is using here to describe the way God feels about his people in the New Testament. A people of, for his own possession. That means a peculiar people, a treasured possession. Can you put up that verse from 1 Peter? Here's another description. It says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. And there it is again, a people for his own possession. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Do you understand today that you are God's treasured possession? Do you see that language? Go back to verse 14 again. To purify. Can you hear it? The intimacy of that for himself. A people for his own possession. That's who you are. And not only that, that's who the people of God are. It's not just describing us individually. It's describing the people of God, the church, God's treasured possession. Now, there's many articles that I see now, and, and honestly, I've been seeing them for many, many years, where people say, I love Jesus, but I hate the church. Have you heard that before or seen anything like that? And you go and you read that and, and you, you try and understand why are they saying that? And for a lot of them, probably everybody, they're saying that because of ways that they've been hurt in the church. I won't ask you to raise your hands, but maybe any, everybody in here has experienced some kind of church hurt before. Maybe everybody in here has inflicted some kind of church hurt. And if you haven't yet, you will. But, How does God feel about the church? How is he describing her here? Is he saying, I love Jesus, but I'm I'm tired of those church people? If anybody should be tired of the church people, it should be God. But how does he feel? This is my treasured possession. This is who Jesus died for. This is who he gave himself for. This is his body. This is his bride. So I love them, and I'm not giving up on them. He who began a good work in you, not just individually, but plural, he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. And so how will you respond to that? Will you use what God has given you by his grace to help the church be who God has called her to be? Because I think what you'll find in that is in the midst of that, the church is going to help you become the person God has called you to be. Well, what does God call the church to be? The last part of our passage we see here, it's a people for his own possession who are what? They're zealous for good works. There's something that's changed in their hearts, isn't it? They're not doing the good works because they feel like they have to. There's a zeal in there. They want to do that. A zeal for good works. Look at Ephesians 2, verse 8. For it's by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is a gift of God. What do you do to earn a gift? Nothing. The person gives you a gift because they love you. And that's what he's saying. It's not the result of works so that no one can boast. You are not saved by your works. But what he's saying in this passage is we are saved for good works. We're saved to do them. Because there, if you look at the next verse in Ephesians 2, it says, For we are his workmanship. Literally in Greek, it's his poema. God's work of art. We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for what? For what? For what? Which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Do you understand today, whether you're from Dalton, Georgia, or from anywhere in this room, wherever you're from, that God has good works that he has prepared in advance for you to walk in? I don't just mean when you get to be old like me. Even now, what are the good works that God has called you to do? The only way you do that is through grace from the past that has saved you, not by your good works, but so that you can do those good works. So stay in school through grace in the present, and grace in the future, and grace from the past. Let me end with this, and then we'll be done. A passage where this comes home powerfully to me is actually one of the passages where Jesus is about to go to the cross. How many of you have heard of a man named Barabbas before? Anybody heard of Barabbas? Well, Barabbas was an insurrectionist. That means he starts riots and a murderer. And he was captured and sentenced to die right around the same time that Jesus was. And Pontius Pilate, as he's examining Jesus, he realizes that Jesus is innocent. But he doesn't want to set him free out of fear, out of peer pressure, actually. But he's trying to find a way to set Jesus free, and he knows there's a custom where they can release one prisoner that the crowd chooses. And so he presents that choice before the crowd, Barabbas or Jesus, knowing that Jesus is innocent and Barabbas is guilty. And I want you to imagine for a second that you are in Barabbas' shoes. I want you to imagine being Barabbas. And I want you to imagine, say you're not out in the front of the crowd, but you're in a cell. And you can hear what's going on outside in the crowd. And you know that what the custom is, that one prisoner is going to be released. And so you're wondering, maybe there's going to be a prisoner who's worse than me, as hard as that can be to believe. And you find out the other prisoner is Jesus. And you're like, oh, I'm done for. And you can hear a commotion outside. You don't know exactly what's going on. But you can hear a commotion, and then all of a sudden, you hear your name, Barabbas, Barabbas, Barabbas. And then the next thing you hear is, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. Now, Pilate had asked, which one do you want to be released? And then he said, what do you want me to do with Jesus? But imagine you didn't hear any of that. All you heard was, Barabbas, Barabbas, crucify him, crucify him. What are you thinking? You're like, oh, it's over. And if you're really honest, you're like, well, Jesus doesn't deserve that. I do. Oh, and I want you to imagine that you can hear the guards coming down the hall, coming to open up the cell door. And they come and they open the doors and they come over to you and you stand up, ready for them to take you out to die, knowing that you're guilty. But instead, what the guards do is they unlock the chains on your wrists and they unlock the chains on your feet. And they open the door, and they say, you're free to go. And you say, that's incredible, but but how could that be? And I want you to imagine them saying to you, because Jesus is taking your place. He's the one who's going for you. Now, I said a minute ago, imagine that you were in Barabbas' shoes. But you know the wild thing is you ain't got to imagine being in Barabbas' shoes. Because you and I are in Barabbas' shoes. That's what Jesus has done for us. Jesus has paid it all for us so that we might be able to go free through faith in him. Now listen, we don't see anything else about Barabbas as we're reading this text. We don't know how his life turned out. But what about yours? How will you respond? To the grace of God. The only right response is to stay in school. The school of grace. Where you never leave, you try to sign up as many people as you can. Stay in school. Through the grace of God. His grace in the present. His grace in the future. And His grace from the past. Won't you stay in school today? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the school that none of us can afford, but you have paid the cost so we can be able to be enrolled. And so we pray, Lord, that you might help us, make us mindful of your grace in the present. Lord, let us look forward and live in light of your grace in the future. And let us never forget and be encouraged by your grace That's been showered on us from the past, from what Jesus has done for us. So we pray that you would use us powerfully as we're staying in school. We pray all this in Jesus' name and all God's people said, Amen.